Hi, I'm Dr. Daniel Golshevsky, paediatrician and father of three. Welcome to my podcast, Dr. Golly and the Experts. Each episode, I'm joined by a parent who has faced an enormous challenge in raising their child and come out the other side as the expert. My guest today is Yusuf Dib. Yusuf is a pro boxer who comes from a family of boxers. His brother Billy Dib was world champion. His cousin Bilal, also an enormously successful boxer in his own right. Yusuf and his wife Nicole have two children daughter Aliyah, age four, and son Jibril, aged three. When Jibby was eight months old, he was officially diagnosed with cerebral palsy. But his battles began much earlier than that. Earlier, in fact, than most people, because Jibby was born extremely premature. Cerebral palsy is essentially a disorder of movement and posture. The part of the brain that controls movement is damaged, and the impact can vary from mild to moderate and severe. CP, as I'll refer to it, it occurs in roughly one in 500 babies. That's one born every 20 hours in Australia. Three quarters of cases occurring during pregnancy and uh, half of these occurring in premature babies. So for Jibby, his challenge began at 25 weeks gestation, weighing only 838 grams. But just like his dad, Yusuf, Jibby's been a fighter since the moment he was born. Yusuf, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Dr. Gully. So tell me about Jibby's arrival into this world. Talk me through the moments that led up to his premature birth and the moment of birth as well. Yeah, so the lead up to Jibby's birth, I guess um, part of the background is, is the fact that my daughter, Aaliyah, was also born prematurely, although she was born seven weeks prematurely. So we spent about two and a half weeks in the neonatal intensive care unit, the NICU, uh, with Aaliyah in the lead up. So when it came to Jibby, we were sort of, I won't say like we, we were aware that she could possibly give birth to Jibril prematurely, but it was sort of somewhere in the back of our mind, obviously with Aaliyah coming early. So for me, it was like, okay, I better get things sorted out a little bit earlier than what I had in the past because with Aaliyah, I wasn't even ready. So it was it was sort of like I did think about it. Um, I didn't really want to verbalize it. I didn't want Nicole, my wife, to think about it too often. And um, we were out swimming one day and I think we don't know if this had anything to do with it. We, we You know, it's speculation, but... Nicole did cop uh, a kick to her stomach while she was swimming from um, somebody else. And, um, you know, Nicole like sort of told me right away, oh, she's like, oh, she just kicked my stomach. I'm like, like, are you okay? And she's like, yeah. I'm like, do you need to go get it checked? She's like, look, I think it's okay. Um, lo and behold, a few hours later, you know, um, my auntie had called me and said to me, um, you know, I'm here at your house and uh, Nicole's water has just broken. I was like, are you sure? Like, it's it's very early. Like, she's only, you know, not even done six months. And um, she's like, yeah, look, I, I was the same. I thought the same as you. So please just get over here as quickly as as you can. And I, I got there as, as fast as possible. And we rushed straight to the hospital, to the Royal Hospital for Women, um, which we were, you know, we had already had Aaliyah at that same hospital. And Aaliyah had spent time in the NICU and, so I guess it sort of felt like a bit of a safe haven for us. 
like knowing that you know we've we've been in in a similar situation obviously with not with a baby you know that young and that was when she was at 24 weeks and 6 days and and Aaliyah, um obviously you said spent some time in the NICU and nursery did she make a full recovery she's completely well. yeah no she was she was perfectly fine you know she was born i think at 2.227 kilos and you know she was a bit of a bigger baby already and um she yeah she she like pretty much flew through it but you know i guess god works in mysterious ways because that sort of experience that we had with Alia for 2 weeks that really helped when it came to you know being in that situation with Jabril and it's not easy for a parent to have to you know come to the hospital and then leave the hospital without their child mm. and that was our reality with Alia and that also became our reality, albeit like a lot longer with Jabril. When he was born, um, the most important moment is the condition when they are born. Yes. Talk me through those seconds and minutes. Okay, so yeah, um, they, they, had, they had pumped Nicole with steroids, with magnesium, obviously to help aid Jabril's you know, lungs and everything for when he was going to come out. And they tried to prolong the process of her actually having to give birth after her water had broken. And then I think Jabril might have might have done the business yep. while he was, he was inside her sack and they had to pull him out emergency. So they were going to do an emergency C-section and then they, you know, while they were on the way down there, they're like, Nicole, you can push. And eventually she was able to do it in a natural birth. And he came out and he was tiny. He was 800, like you said, 838 grams. And he was pretty much immediately taken and put into the, you know, the incubator and into all of their care and straight onto the machines and, and everything else. Like all the things that are extremely scary, you know, having to see it. But again, with Aaliyah, I had seen it once before. So I, I was sort of prepared for that. And, and we had for those three days that we were waiting for her to have to give birth, you know, from the time that her water broke. It was a Saturday when her water broke and it became the Tuesday that, you know, she gave birth. So during those three days, like we were getting a lot of information about, okay, how small is he going to be? And, you know, what are they going to have to do? And, you know, what's the, what's the risk of him living and, and things like that. And we sort of got put up to speed very quickly. And, and, you know, that's, that's, a lot of gratitude is owed to the wonderful staff there at the Royal Hospital for Women. We often talk with um, parents when they're, they're thrown into this new world. It's like a completely different language, right? And it's quite fascinating because you guys spoke it, thankfully, because of Aaliyah. Yeah. Um, a lot of terminology that, that it, you know, it just, it's overwhelming when you're hearing it for the first time at the same time as being really distressed, stressed, potentially physically in pain as well. So that was handy for you guys, as you said, to know a lot about this beforehand. Um, You mentioned a few things already, um, like steroids that are given to mum before babies are born to try to help develop the lungs in those last few hours or days before baby's born, magnesium to try to protect the brain. There's all of these different things. In those three days, the Saturday to Tuesday, was it ever put to you about not resuscitating Gibby when he was born? Was it put to you as an option? Yes, it, it, it was given as an option. And it was actually given as an option 
before Aaliyah was born as well. And, and like, I just sort of looked at it like it's, okay, it's just, you know, hospital protocol. Um, you don't sort of look at it in, the thing that I learned to do with the hospital is that they can't be sensitive to every case. It's not possible. You know, they can only show so much compassion, like whilst doing their jobs, you know, and, and, and it is a, it's a brilliant balance that many doctors, nurses, you know, anybody that's in that sort of field that they have to strike because you get too attached when bad things happen. Like, how do you live with constant grief? You can't, you know, you, you have to be able to put things in perspective and, and know that, okay, essentially we are people, but we're also a number that's coming through the hospital. You're right. Um, so, look, yeah, no, nah, it was it was it was difficult knowing that there was a possibility that he wasn't going to come out and and be able to lead a normal life. Or, but you've always got that hope that everything's going to be okay. And it, seeing countless examples around you in in the NICU and the time that we, again, the time that we had spent with Aaliyah, seeing other babies who were born a lot earlier than what she was and seeing them coming out the other side, you know, they're, they're moments that give you a lot of hope. And, and this is why Nicole and I are so open about speaking about our journey because hopefully our journey is going to be able to give other people hope too. Absolutely. That, you know, even when the doctors say that this might be the case or that might be the case, at the end of the day, whether you're a believer in a higher power, that's what's in control. And that, that's my belief system is that God is in control. And I left everything that I could in God's control. And that was the way that I was able to get through. That's how that I could, you know, go to sleep at night and knowing that we're, we're at home while our son's in the hospital. And it, and it was your father, in fact, who came in? supported that decision yeah so you know once you know Jabril obviously he went through a lot of issues he had neck um, which led to you know part of his bowel dying necrotizing enterocolitis that's right yes um, part of the bowel uh, you know this is bowel that's not meant to be processing milk at such a premature age age. yes Um, and then it can suffer die and then have to be cut out. So we're talking major surgery. Yeah. You know, in a child that weighs less than a kilogram, the, these are significant, major, major hurdles. And every step of the way from the anesthetic to the surgery to the recovery, every single step is just, you know, you're on eggshells the whole <laughs> time. Yeah. Like the, the, the edge of, of whilst he was in hospital and, you know, like obviously they're trying to give you a bit of reassurance and tell you that, look, he's in the best of care and everything, but yeah, there's always that that feeling of like, okay, we've just let our son go. We, we've only been able to walk to a certain point and then he's had to go through with these people who are, look, they're experts at what they do, but they're complete strangers to us. Yeah. They don't know how much this boy means to us. They don't know the challenges that we've already been through that, you know, then for him to, to have neck and to have to have a stoma bag, learning how to deal with having to change that stoma bag, how to clean it, how to keep it from getting infected, which my wife became amazing. And, you know, she astonished many nurses 
who were there and they were asking midwives who were asking, you know, how do you do it so well? And, you know, they were like asking her for tips on how to do it. And, um, you know, those challenges and then leading up to his kidney failure and, and at one point them coming to us and saying to us that, look, Jibril is obviously very sick and we forecast that he has four and a half hours to live. Do you want us to continue on with the life support? And they gave us that option a number of times. And I remember sitting in that room and the first time that they did give us that option, I sat in that room with, with my wife and, and the doctor who, again, you can only be so compassionate and so sensitive to a situation. And, and the doctor, you know, wasn't very sensitive in the way that it came out of her mouth and what happened in the lead up to it. And, um, you know, just her sort of demeanor as we walked to a room sitting us down and saying, your son's very sick and we think he's got four and a half hours to live, you know, do you want us to pull the plug? And it's like, oh. And, and that sort of harrowing moment of thinking that, okay, this is the worst possible situation that we could possibly be in. Thinking about, okay, what's a, what's a life without Jabril? What, is, what does life look like without it? And, and me thinking about, like, at that moment, thinking about funeral and, and thinking about, like, putting myself in those moments, even though we weren't there just yet, but putting myself in those moments, like I was thinking about people coming to me at the funeral. And I, like it was, it was one of the, um, the most empty, emptying feelings like that. I, I felt like, okay, I had lost pretty much all hope. And it's not a conversation you had once. You had this conversation five times. Five times. Yeah, no, numerous times. And, and the first time was obviously the hardest one to do with it and then it just became no just just keep doing what you can to save our boy so where did that come from? i mean that takes the most extraordinary strength inner strength where did that come from did it come from nicole did it come from your religion did it come from your your training professionally what, how do you get back up off the canvas each time look uh, I, I i won't credit myself because i had to deal with it but I'm a father and I'm, I'm a man and I need to be able to deal with the worst of situations, the best of situations because I have a family to look after and I, the strength that we, we got collectively was from our support network, was from you know, our faith in, in God and, and, and our constant prayer, like just constantly being, uh, I, like I remember during those times my mother and my father like, Anytime they'd come to the hospital, which was very often, they'd be there and they'd re just be reciting prayers, like, you know, like looking at GB or touching the incubator and just reciting a prayer. And, and it allowed me to, to, to get down and put my head down on the, on the floor and, and pray to God and, and ask God to help and like surrender. Basically, I surrendered myself and, and all of my affairs to God. And that, that helped. And in Nicole's case, I think just her, her knowing that she was a mother, she had Aaliyah. We had, and this was, this was a big variable. We had Aaliyah who was, you know, just a year old at the time. Wow. And we were spending so much time in the hospital, you know, four and a half months. And like Aaliyah was truly a blessing during that time because she'd come, you know, and during the time that she could come to the hospital before the whole pandemic started, um, 
she was like a ray of light. Like you'd see Aaliyah and, you know, she, it was like she knew what was going on without, you know, being at that, that age to sort of comprehend. Oh, they know. They yeah, they just know. know. They just know. And like, she just, you know, even though this, this little being that didn't even resemble a human yet, like she'd look at him and she put her hand on the, onto the incubator and you could see that she already had that connection with him and that connection has like stuck until now. Like I could still see it that, you know, she knows that and Jabril's come on leaps and bounds since then and she still knows that that's her little brother who had such a rough time and you could see it in her, in her gentle manner around him and how she treats him. You know, it's, it's a beautiful thing to see and you pray that your kids will always be like that towards each other. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's quite extraordinary. Um, the siblings of children with a disability have such a unique perspective and such an incredible outlook and, the, and especially an older sister. I imagine her to be quite protective of him and supportive of him to this day. Definitely. And it's like it was, it was just a blessing that we did have Leah because if, if that was the case with our first child, I'm sure that it would have been a lot harder to deal with and, you know, the breaking, there would have been a lot more breaking down. I know that because, you know, just being at home, Nicole didn't have time to break down. She just thought about Aaliyah and just, I spent, you know, pretty much all of my day at the hospital. It's time to give Aaliyah a little bit as well. And that's, that's such a special power that a mother has because she had the energy to do that. Yeah. You know, I felt like during that time, like, that Jibby was like as sick as he was beyond boxing training and, and doing what I had to do at training. I had no energy for anything else. Didn't have energy for people. I didn't have energy. And, and I, I look back at photos and, and there is a photo of me and I just look so drained laying down on, on Aaliyah's little, uh, little couch. She had a little couch, a little Barbie couch or whatever, and I was laying down on it. And Aaliyah's there and she's looking at me or touching my face or something like that. And I'll just look at that photo and it's sort of symbolic to me that, you know, even when we were like really down and, and, and suffering, like Aaliyah still gave us that love, that hope and that, that care. And she, she had so much care for her brother. And we, and we could see how much like his milestones mean to her as well. Seeing, you know, seeing Jibby go on to, to do things that, like, you know, doctors said that he couldn't do. She was a massive source of our strength. It's, uh, I, I'd say especially Nicole's, you know, speaking for Nicole. Yusuf, we've talked about the initial challenge, you know, when a preemie baby's born, it, it's it's all about breathing. The focus is on breathing. Um, right. So Jibby would have had a tube inserted um, to inflate his lungs um, and manage his breathing. Once you can control the breathing, the heart usually takes care of itself. Um, infections are always a problem, so they're on antibiotics, intense antibiotics. You've already talked about the kidneys failing at one point. You've talked about the gut failing, how we had to have a stoma. That's where the gut is so um, dysfunctional, can't cope that it's actually externalized, which means that you know instead of the gut plugging into the anus to do a normal bowel action, the gut is actually brought up to the skin and a fake opening is made and so the poo comes out into a bag, which, as you said, had to be changed by Nicole and, the, and yourself and 
the nurses as well. Were there any other significant challenges or body systems that were affected, any other surgeries that GP had during his NICU stay? Uh, no other surgeries during his NICU stay, but the, um, the main thing was the brain bleed. Uh, you know, knowing that the left side had a brain bleed and that was like, that was the most challenging thing for me to understand, not so much to deal with, but to understand and realize what effect it was going to have on Jibby and, and the effect on, on his quality of life and things like that. Like that, that to me, that was, I couldn't really wrap my head around how it worked or, you know, why it happened. And, and yeah, again, just thinking about what could possibly be the case because of that brain bleed, you know, where they said that he might have, you know, limited function on one side of his body or he might, you know, just be a little bit slower at school. And I remember when they actually said that to, to us and my wife was like, it's okay, I wasn't very good at school. And I was like, Nicole, that's not what he's talking about. You know, like, because you're so naive to what, and, and you and like as a parent, you just don't want to think about the worst things that could be, you know, that, that could be the case. And just having that hopefulness that, it, it's going to be okay and Jabril's just going to have a normal life. We're going to get out of here and he's going to have a normal life. But once they started to explain that, okay, he had a brain bleed and he was going to be high risk for CP, we could start like preparing for that. D- did we understand what having a child with CP meant? No. Could anybody really explain to us what that meant? I don't think so. Impossible because there's, you know, the brain can change this concept of plasticity, new parts of the brain learning. Um, And there's so much variability in terms of function that it's it's one of the frustrating things for doctors and a billion times more frustrating for families that we can't give answers and Mm. you can't predict. And, you know, why is CP so common in this population? Well, there's this concept of a watershed area in the brain. So um, if you imagine... The best way that I've always conceptualized it is if you imagine a big piece of lawn grass at the front of your house and you've got two sprinklers, one at the far left and one at the far right, the grass nearest to the sprinkler will get most of the water. Yeah. And then in the middle, right in the middle of the garden, that piece of grass is getting a little bit from the left and a little bit from the right, but it's really dependent on those two little bits to get enough water. And if there's any threat to the water supply from either side, it's not going to get enough. Now, if you consider the brain in the same way and the water as blood supply, the motor strip, the motor cortex of the brain is that watershed area. So if there's any threat to blood supply, which can happen during the pregnancy, it can happen during the delivery, it can happen when the kidneys fail, it can happen during the operation. I mean, poor Gibby had up to a dozen opportunities where there was a threat to that supply. And that's why that part of the brain was damaged, which is why the motor impact, the impact on the motor part of the brain is so common in these scenarios. What prompted you to actually get the official cerebral palsy diagnosis? Well, during our stay at the hospital, because we were there for so long, like they said to us that like we believe that Jabril is going to be high risk for CP and 
was eventually like they said to us that like we we believe that Jabril like just from his his legs as well like when you try to change his nappy his legs would be sort of crossed over and um you know in in that sort of position and you're like how do you unlock this kid <laughs> to, yeah, to change so his nappy like, were tight and stiff. they were very tight mm. he was he was very tight yeah so they said that so we stayed on top of that and and then eventually you know after more testing and things like that they did diagnose Jabril it was only a short time after we were home and settled like it felt like we were only settled for this smallest little part and just so excited to have Jabril and then for us to get the official diagnosis Nicole's reaction was a lot different to mine and um I don't know if if this is just a stigma with with people within my culture or whether that be you know people you know on a general basis but there was a lot of people around me tapping me on the shoulder and saying to me, no, 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 he's going to be okay. He's going to be okay. Don't worry. It's, you know, they, they, they were wrong about this and they were wrong about that. It, it's all right. You know, he doesn't have cerebral palsy. And like people who would like say he's been diagnosed with it and then people still have the gall to come to you and say to you like, and I'll, look, it comes from a good place. You know, f- what is that? Is that, is that naivety? Is it trying to give you hope? Try, I think I think it is them trying to give us hope or them trying, you know, or maybe it's just an easier way to to soften the conversation around it. You know, it's something that not a lot of people have a lot of understanding about. Was that you frustrating know, for you and Nicole? I think it was very frustrating for Nicole. For myself, I sort of soaked it in a little bit, to be honest with you, because I went through a lot of denial when it came to to Jabril's diagnosis and you know I'm not proud to say it but I sort of felt like I sort of feel like at that time that Nicole had accepted that okay our son has cerebral palsy and that I was still in denial I sort of let her deal with everything at that time like any time that she wanted to talk to me about it and 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 you know, talk to me about one of Jabril's appointments or like I'd just be like, no, 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 don't bring that into my world. I don't want to know it. I don't want to hear it. And obviously that was very selfish of me. But at that time I just couldn't come to accept the fact that Jabril had cerebral palsy. That caused a lot of friction between you and Nicole? It could have caused a lot of friction, but thankfully um, I think she knew that I needed time to sort of accept it. And she said to me, she goes, eventually it's going to hit you. And when it does, like, we'll talk. So she just literally took it on her shoulders. And for the first, I'm going to call it eight to, to 10 months after his actual diagnosis, or at least, yeah, at least for the six months, like she would go to appointments, she would do it all. Like I'd just look after Aaliyah and she'd be the one who'd, you know, come and, and have to deal with it. And, and I can imagine how many times that she would have had to break down alone because she had somebody who just wasn't willing to accept it just yet. And that really, like that makes me feel like pretty terrible inside. But, you know, thankfully we've healed and we've moved on from that. And I think once that did hit me, and I was pretty lucky at the time that when it did hit me, I, I have a a mentor and a very good friend um, by the name of Sid who you know has helped me in career wise and life wise and sort of is like a life coach for me 
once that reality began to sink in that Jabril had cerebral palsy, I was able to lean on him and sort of give an outburst of my feelings. And, and I think the main thing was the guilt that I was feeling that I was like, it's not that big a deal if he does have cerebral palsy. What do you mean? Tell me about that guilt. Was that guilt you felt towards Nicole or guilt you felt to Chibi? Yeah, guilt towards both of them because the 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 guilt towards Nicole and you know leaving her to fend by herself and deal with all of those emotions by herself without speaking to the most important to her, speaking to the people most important to her, you know, being me. And then it made me feel like the fact that I wasn't accepting of it, like. Did I believe that it was going to make me love Jabril any less? You know, was it was it going to affect the way that I felt? Like, you know, did it affect my macho? I grew up with a cousin who has cerebral palsy, who had been in his wheelchair his whole life, wheelchair wheelchair bound, and he's a champion guy, and he's got four children. So, what was it about my son having cerebral palsy that I couldn't accept, and that guilt? really got to me and Sid helped me navigate past those waters and learn to accept that it is what it is. Jabril is still going to be able to inspire many people and he's probably inspiring a lot more people than I could ever do with my with my own boxing career. So, you know, what do you want in life? You know, like what's so important? And for me, it was like, okay, accepting the fact that I wouldn't be able to go to the park and kick a soccer ball with Jibby. That that was a big one for me. That was like, I'm not going to be able to take my son to the park because my son is not going to be able to walk. And I didn't, at that point, when I did accept, I didn't believe that Jabril was going to walk, you know, because I had I had clung on to that hope that he, that he doesn't have cerebral palsy, that when I worked out that he did, I just automatically thought that, okay, he was going to be wheelchair-bound like my cousin. Mm. Speaking of, of all this, talk of walking and first steps um i read an article where they quoted nicole and she said the most beautiful thing she said it turns out it wasn't jibril who needed to take the first steps it was us so what has jibby taught you he has taught me more than i have He's taught me a lot more than I've taught him so far. <laughs> that's 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 the truth. He's uh, he's taught me a lot about resilience. He's taught me a lot about the fact that, you know, despite what people may say or may think, that it's not final. And as a person who has always been heavily, like I've always been heavily judgmental of myself growing up. You know, I, I don't know if that's something to do with being the youngest of seven siblings or whatever it was, um, you know, when it comes to anything in my life, whether it was work work life, whether it was, you know, relationships, whether it's my boxing, I'm, I'm very judgmental of myself. And I guess Jibby has taught me that no matter what, is, is the situation like there's a way to dig out of it like there is a way and and you know he, he's given me a lot of faith because you know when I asked God to help my son live at times where like again when they're saying to you that your son's got four and a half hours to live 
you know, and I remember my dad walking into the hospital and saying to me, look, is he still breathing? And we said, yes. And he said, just leave it with God then. And whatever God decides, we'll do with it. We're going to do with it. And, you know, but just leave it to God. And, you know, that, that he, that whole situation gave me a lot of faith and, and, and just knowing that, you know, when something really, you really want something, if you can ask for it from the bottom of your heart, like, it's it's going to happen for you, you know. And, and do you turn that into motivation for you when you step foot into the ring each time? Consciously, yes. Subconsciously, yes. Like, it's it's just, it's there because, you know, just even in my most recent fight, you know, which was just a couple of weeks back now, I got flawed in, in the sixth round, you know. I was, I got hurt by, by a big, you know, left hook and I was, basically out on my feet and I had been dropped and getting up and like when I'm when I'm really like getting put through the ringer at training and, and I'm I'm suffering like think of Jibby because they know that like this kid's so tough and he's been through so much and he's just he kept getting up and he done what you know boxers are expected to do when they're when they're when they hit the canvas that's to stand up before the count of 10 and he's done that numerous times already in his young life like, yeah he's, he's going to be a champion no matter what he does in life before we talk about what Jibby's cp means functionally i just want to ask one question we know obviously that Jibby experienced brain injury which led to the cerebral palsy there's a lot of talk around contact sports, no more than in the case of boxing. Do you find a challenge that you are consciously putting yourself in harm's way, especially from the point of view of brain contact, concussion, etc., knowing that the, the fragility of the brain? Do you find it hard to reconcile those two with your professional hat versus your parent hat? Well, good question. <laughs> I think with any combat sports athlete, they know any time that they step into the ring that there is a possibility that they're going to come out less of themselves or even not come out of there at all. Like for me, I know that every time I step into the ring that that's a possibility. You know, and I, that, that is a thought that puts you into survival mode. That's a thought that puts you like that, that you know, that your back, up, your back is up against the wall. So you have to fight your way to live, basically. You know, like metaphorically, mm-hmm. when you step into the ring, like you're fighting for your life. And you are. You're fighting for a better life. You know, because it's, it's, it's a scary thing for my wife. It's a scary thing for my parents. It's a scary thing for my siblings, for all, my, for all of my loved ones who support me but I'm sure that every time I get into the ring, because I know on my on my on my own part of of you know being Billy's brother, and every time that Billy would step into the ring, and how much angst I have, and you know the concerns that I have, and you know at times I've seen him lose and I've seen him be knocked out. At the same time, I I just I leave it in the hands of God, and understand that I've put in as much work as I possibly can so that that's not the case. So that I can come out healthily, um, and you know, and I pray that that's the case for for both my myself and for my opponent every every time before every fight. That's that's my way of getting past it. 
But, you know, since being a parent, since, since becoming a parent, like you do think about those things a lot more. And it's a good point you're asking about it with, with Jabril and his, and his brain bleed, obviously, because you understand. Because when people ask me, oh, would you let your kids box? I say, no, Jabril will never box because Jabril had a brain bleed when he was young. So, you know, Aaliyah, and Aaliyah's well, too pretty. I was going to say, <laughs> Aaliyah box? Aaliyah's too pretty. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure she'd love to. Let's pivot now to, um, to life today with, with Jibby because um, there's an enormous amount of support that is required. Um, there's the allied health support with physiotherapy, yep. occupational therapy, um, speech therapy. There's medications as well. There's a lot of modifications that happen to the home, to the car. These, while the CP is a fixed condition, it doesn't get worse the physical and orthopedic complications do get worse. And as yep. Jibby gets bigger and bigger, he becomes harder to manage, he becomes harder to lift, to transfer, et cetera, et cetera. It's a very long-winded question. I apologize. No, you talked okay. about Nicole doing the, the, the bulk of the heavy lifting in the, in the early days, but there wasn't NDIS support there. But thankfully, you were able to lean on the Cerebral Palsy Alliance. Yes. Talk me through that incredible organization and how they helped you they obviously you know anybody who sort of works in that field is you know that they've got a special part of them sort of like there's there's got to be something there's got to be something in you that's special and that you've got a feeling that you need to service the world and and to and to service you know a small minority you know in in terms of of children who may have cerebral palsy and You've just got special qualities about you. So once Jibril was first diagnosed, obviously the process of of getting with NDIS takes some time. So it was during that time where obviously early intervention with things like this is so important. And that's that's a big message that Nicole and I like to give is that early intervention is extremely, extremely important. And I'm so grateful that Nicole was so quick to get onto things. Because while I sat there in denial, she was the one, like you said, doing the heavy lifting. But, you know, Cerebral Palsy Alliance, we were put onto them by the Royal Hospital for Women. And they basically gave us free treatment during the time that, you know, we were waiting to, to be aligned with NDIS. And, you know, paying for that with, with fundraising money and things like that. And that's like something that you, you, are, you are forever grateful for because... They didn't have to do that. And it was important for Jibby to, to get that support at that early age. So um, they're an amazing alliance who, who basically provide everything that you need for a child who suffers from cerebral palsy and also other disabilities and things like that. And they put us on in line with an occupational therapist, with a physiotherapist, with a speech therapist. And slowly slowly and it doesn't happen obviously overnight it doesn't happen you know in the space of a week or even months but slowly slowly you start to notice that this kid's developing in ways that we didn't even know was possible for him mm. you know and for, for for Jabril at one point to be in a walking frame and for us to be hopeful that okay maybe he will one day let go of the walking frame but also come in to accept that he might need that that special aid forever because you know he is he is in the classification of the 
gross motor function classification score. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Classification system. That's yeah, we, system. We yeah, that's the one. Yeah, he, he was a number two. So, you know, we understood that he might need aid for long distances. And he was he had the walking frame for a space of like 10 months and then he let it go. And it's like, what? Yeah. And those first steps that he takes without the walking frame and you're like, Wow. I, I must say, I mean, the boxing analogies are endless in terms of you know, having a, a big team in your corner or working towards a common goal. But I've got to be honest, when, when this story first, when I first came across it, and I, my eyes scanned over Jibby's history, I saw 25 weeks, 800 grams, and I thought to myself, I know where this is headed. This is GMFCS5. It's wheelchair bound. It's non-verbal. I, like, I know where it's headed. I've seen it before. I've managed these kids before. And then I Googled Jibby. And I didn't believe my eyes. Firstly, he's got the cutest eyes in the world. You know those eyes you look at and you think you can't not smile when you see yeah. those eyes. It's something cheeky, cheeky it, in those eyes. It's crazy. And then it's crazy. I look at more pictures and he's, he's walking. It's quite extraordinary. And just, you know, walking turned into running. And like he, he'll run, like his his sister will run, and he'll try and chase her with all his might. And you could see, obviously, you can see that he's walking in a, a particular manner. You know, he's got his his hands up still. Yeah. But slowly, slowly, okay, things are happening. He's carrying things while he's walking. Wow, he just took that step without holding the rail. Like just these little milestone moments, but they are not something that again happens overnight. And and behind having a village of people who are helping, helping helping that be the case. So in, in a couple of months, Jibby's four. What's yeah. he up to now? And what's the next target? What where have you shifted the goalpost? To? Okay, so the last the last milestone we hit, which was pretty recently as well, was getting th- getting him to jump. Oh, so that was that that like bend your knees and <laughs> jump, and he was screaming like very loud. He was loving bend it. Bend your knees and <laughs> jump, and like he couldn't get up. And then oh, I'm gonna say it was less than four or five weeks ago where I noticed him do it bend his knees and he actually got off the floor and did a good jump so then now we're progressing him to jumping off a step you know to to, to get a nice nice big jump and um i think for for me like I, i've i've spoken to nicole about this is the one thing that a lot of people say to us about jabril is like when we tell them that he has cerebral palsy they'll be like oh but he doesn't look like he's got it and and really, when you see him standing around, like you would never like even think anything, like even in his shape and and everything. But when he walks and he's got his arms up and his arms are in that sort of triangular motion, or, or you know, at his shoulder, his elbows are at his shoulder height, just to give himself some stability and balance. Like I think that it's it's very a real possibility that he could bring his hands down and and walk with his hands by his side as we do and that's that for me is is the next goal because to me that's the most like visible thing that you can see with Jibby. but look at this point i'll be i'll be honest with you dr golly like he could you know be stuck at this point forever and i'll love him as much as i i will ever love him if he was to make the olympics i promise you (laughs) 
but yeah, look, um, there's always goals that you got to try and try and you know, and, and that's the thing with his development. Like we're also very in the dark about knowing how far or how much progress Jabril can have. We are in the dark about it, but that's okay. Mm. Every moment's exciting. I promise you. Every single every single thing, like just the things that you don't appreciate. Aaliyah, like when Aaliyah does certain things and, and this sort of makes you feel a little bit bad as as a parent of two, is that like she could do something and it's like, okay, it's expected. Mm. But Jabril will do something and it's celebrated. Like it is really celebrated. And Aaliyah is a little champion because she celebrates it too with us. Sounds like um, she's got a big heart. Yeah, but just having those little moments there, like they make you so grateful for, for everything and and. and it, like I said, it doesn't matter if this is where, as far as his progress goes. We're going to love him just as much. Yusuf, thank you so much for joining us. We absolutely love having dads on this podcast. Um, <laughs> it's just it's a beautiful story, um, beautiful motivation for you, for, for all our listeners. Thank you so much. And to learn more about cerebral palsy and where to get support, I'll also put notes uh, and links to the Cerebral Palsy Alliance. Please follow the links in the show notes. And to enjoy more parenting stories like this one, please like, follow, subscribe and share Dr. Golly and the experts wherever you listen. And for any information on my sleep programs or new book, head to drgolly.com. Just before you go, I have a quick favour to ask. If you're enjoying this podcast, I'd love if you could rate and review the show so that more people can find us and hear the incredible stories of my phenomenal guests. Thank you.